it's it's super fun to be here this morning. Um, I'm excited because of how it looks outside. I was expecting some snow, but not what we got. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys. You know, the, the the 15 of us and the the spirit that is all across Middletown and, and South Dayton that's connecting us this morning. I'm excited to be with you this morning. Um, I'm excited about our sermon series. I always feel like kind of refreshed when we get back into the gospels. It's always great to like explore the life of Jesus. It just feels good to do. And lastly, it's playoff Sunday and there's a Bengals game. Guys, it's Bengals playoff Sunday. That is like a phrase that up until a year ago would just not made sense to anybody. Um, so for my non-football friends, and I know I have a couple in the room here, and um, for any um, Steelers and Browns fans, uh, let me explain what the playoffs are. <laughs> I'm just getting death stares. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so today is the divisional round. Um, the divisional round is like the elite eight. It's the, the quarterfinals. And today the Bengals will be playing the Buffalo Bills at 3 p.m. in Buffalo. And both teams are really talented. So I expect it to be a really good game. Now, there is kind of an interesting thing about playing the, the Buffalo Bills. Um, unlike most fan bases, you know, most fan bases in the NFL, they generally don't like each other, but the Bengals fan base and the Bills fan base, they, they, they kind of like each other. Um, like might be a strong word, but there's sort of a mutual respect between these two teams. And that respect between NFL fan bases is pretty rare. Um, recently, there was a matchup between the Ravens, who the Bengals hate, or at least the Bengals fans hate, and the Steelers, who Bengals fans loathe with every fiber of their being. And this was a high-stakes matchup for the Bengals because we needed, and you notice I say we because I'm a fan and I just lump myself in there, we needed the, uh, the Steelers to beat the Ravens in order to secure a playoff spot. So it was in our best interest to root for the Steelers. <laughs> but that was difficult. Um, when someone in a group text, with, which is mostly Bengals fans, um, asked, hey, who are we rooting for in this game? The most common answer was Bane. <laughs> now, let me explain what that means. Bane is a reference to a, um, a Batman movie where the villain Bane, he creates an explosion of some type that swallows the Steelers stadium in the middle of the game. <laughs> now, I don't think that any of my friends, and I may have actually said that, <laughs> so I don't think that any of my friends or myself truly want to see this happen. But it illustrates just how hard it is for a Bengals fan. And, you know, just to prove, I know I'm not wearing any Bengals colors here, or, or am I? Yeah. Um, it's, it's just really difficult for a Bengals fan to root for, for the Steelers. And it illustrates just how hard it can be to work with your enemy, to team up with your enemy. So I want you to imagine your arch enemy. Each one of you, imagine who your arch enemy is. 
Um, now that could be a sports team. It could be the, the, the rival team of your favorite team. It could be some sort of an organization that just drives you crazy. Um, if you're really into politics, it could be the other side of the political aisle. Um, it could be a social group. You know, it could be a group of people that maybe you interact with socially that when you see them, you just sort of like try to go the, the other way. Um, or you could have like the old-fashioned nemesis. It's, a, it's an individual. It's just one person, maybe at your work or maybe that you run into, that, man, you guys are just oil and water. You guys just do not mix. So imagine your enemy. Imagine the person or, or group that just drives you crazy. What would it take for you to team up with them? What would it take for you to embrace them and work with them on some important project voluntarily? Whatever that is, it would be something extraordinary, right? It would be something extraordinary that would take, that it would take to, to make you and your enemy work together. Well, I want you guys to think about that concept as we get into our scripture this morning. We're still in um, the early stages of the book of Mark, um, talking about uh, Jesus, obviously, and we're going to be in Mark 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Um, I don't know whether or not this will be anywhere other than me reading it, so I'm just going to read it, and uh, we'll go from there. So um, Mark 3 reads... Um, and he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and he looked around at them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what I want you guys to focus in on initially is the very end. And because what we find is we see plotting between two groups. We see two groups plotting against Jesus, and that is the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, this flies past us because we're not, you know, um, familiar with ancient Jewish social politics. But the original readers, the original hearers of this story would have been shocked because these groups hated each other. This was, this was Bane level hate. This was, you know, we're going to knife you in a dark alley kind of level hate. So what drove these arch enemies together? So I want to, that's kind of what I want to explore this morning. What could drive two groups that hated each other this much together? And so we're going to look at this and we're going to examine each of the groups in this, um, in this story. We're going to examine each party and then how they intersect with Jesus. The first group we're going to start off with is the Pharisees. We're talking about the Pharisees and we know them pretty well. They're in a lot of the stories that we read. So we're relatively familiar with them. They're the, the Jewish sect that 
emphasize adherence to the Mosaic law, and they kind of added rules beyond what was written in the Bible. Um, I like to think of it as a kind of like rulified religion. You've heard people say like they, people might gamify something, turn a, a boring task into a game, you're gamifying it. They're rulifying it. They're rulifying Judaism and turning it into a list of do's and don'ts, which <clears throat> sounds awful and is awful. Um, who would want that? Why would they do it? Who would follow that? I think it's helpful here if we think about the contact, context into which the Pharisees rose to power. Um, I, I want you guys to remember that currently Israel is an occupied territory. Um, Rome conquered Jerusalem, Jerusalem in 63 BC. So really, if you think about when we're sitting, they have pretty recently, within a generation, maybe a little more, they have been conquered by an, a foreign power. And then Rome, it deposed the ruling party and put in the Herods, they're kind of their puppet leaders over Israel in 40 BC. Now remember that name as we're gonna get, circle back to that in a second. But you can kind of see that what was once sort of an insular protected community has been conquered, is being ruled by foreigners, and this is causing an influx of Roman Hellenistic values, religions, systems, culture. And many Jewish people, like the Pharisees, they see all this coming in, and they see it as a threat to their traditional Jewish values. They see the idolatry and the licentiousness that is associated with some of this paganism that is now flooding into their culture. And it concerns them. It worries them. So what do they do? To, to push back, to combat this threat, and to help define themselves against their enemies, they develop this strict, this rulified brand of Judaism. And this reaction from the Pharisees against this, against the, the, the opening up of the culture here, this isn't unique. At any time a society goes through like large scale social change, you're going to see groups behave this way. You're going to see groups use religion and that religion could be Judaism, that religion could be Christianity, that religion could be secularism. They're gonna use religion, religion as a tool to help shape the culture they want to see and help define themselves against their enemies. So one way we could define the Pharisees if we wanted to is um, a group of people pushing law and order in response to a culture they fear is slipping away. They're the law and order group that's trying to reclaim the culture that they once knew. Kind of <laughs> sounds familiar, right? It does. It kind of sounds familiar. Now, when I phrase it that way, I could guess that some people might get a little uncomfortable w making that comparison. And I'm really not trying to take a shot at today's political landscape at all. Um, 
the fact that it feels a little uncomfortable to make that comparison actually is gonna illustrate my next point. And that is when we read our Bibles and we look at the Pharisees, we see them as the bad guys. They're almost like cartoon character bad guys in all these stories. They're just someone we can boo. You know, they're, they're, they're the punching bag. Jesus is the, the hero and they're the guys who get socked. But, and, and maybe this is just me, but the more I read the Bible and the older I get, I think, maybe that has more to do with it. <laughs> the, the more I mature, um, I start to think that maybe that's not the most nuanced way of looking at them. Um, I don't feel like that's how Jesus looks at the Pharisees. I want you to kind of think about verse five again. So I'm gonna read verse five again for you. And he, Jesus, looked around at them, the Pharisees, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Do we, do we understand what he, what's going on here? We understand the anger. That part makes sense to me completely. Um, the NIV translation says that they have stubborn hearts. And um, Pastor Tim Keller, he defines stubbornness as blindness mixed with hostility. And so he's like, these guys are spiritually blind. Because here they are, they're in the house of God. They're coming to the synagogue, the house of God. And who does God say he is? Over and over again, who does God say he loves? The lowly and the marginalized people. And who do they not see? The lowly and marginalized man with the withered hand at their doorstep. They're blind. They accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. When the very purpose of the Sabbath is a day of rest. Think of that word rest. Rest, restoration, right? What is rest for? It's for restoring us. God created it for our own restoration. These ideas are linked in Mark 2, 27, right before, if you go back just a paragraph in your Bible, Jesus tells them that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So we can understand like Jesus's frustration with them. Their rulified religion has distorted their vision, has made them so blind that they can't see that when Jesus restores, rest, when he restores this man's hand, he's fulfilling the Sabbath, not breaking it. So the anger, the anger makes sense. I get it. But what about the grief? Do we understand the grief? The, the Greek word here that's used suggests that Jesus was grieving as one who lost a dear loved one. And in other translations like the NIV, you get the phrase deeply saddened. And in the um, NLT, it is deeply distressed, deeply saddened, deeply stressed, grieved. Why? Over what? Why is Jesus so emotionally on the verge of, you know, tears here? It tells us. Why is he so sad? It's their hearts. It's their hard, stubborn, blind little hearts. 
He grieves over their hearts like someone who lost a loved one. These guys aren't punching bags to Jesus. They're God's children and he loves them. And he loves them more than you and I can possibly comprehend. And he's emotionally grieved by the deadness he sees in their hearts. You know, they may be wrong. They may be an obstacle to him. Jesus may at times speak sharply to them. They may even lead to his death. Spoiler alert, we do all the same things. But he never treats them uncaringly. They're blind. But we have to remember that through Jesus, the blind may see. If they would but soften their hearts, there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus would cure their spiritual deformity in the same way that he cured the man's withered hand. Now this this hardening of hearts, it's not a on-off switch. It's something that happens over time, degree by degree. It's a slow boil. And so the questions for us as we examine these, these people, these Pharisees, and we move away from this part is, in what ways are you tempted to act like a Pharisee? You know, things like putting rules over people, things like, you know, kind of basking in a, in a, a feeling of, of moral superiority. In what ways do you see that creep into your, your heart? And then maybe a very similar question, you know, where in your heart towards what or towards whom does hardness, does blindness, does stubbornness, does it creep up? What areas of your heart are at risk? And then what are you doing to prevent the, the, the slow boil of a hardened heart? So we're going to move from the Pharisees to our next uh, party in our story. And that's the Herodians. You may have figured this out, but they were the party that supported Herod. Herod, Herodians, um, the ruler that established, uh, was established by Rome after uh, the conquering of Israel. So they were too a Jewish sect. They were um, people that believed the Jewish uh, religion. Uh, but unlike the Pharisees, they were okay with the secularization of culture if it kept Rome happy and kept them in power. A little immorality was a small price to pay if it meant a smoother relationship with Rome. Plus, hey, what's wrong with a little fun? Um, so basically, these guys were the polar opposites of the Pharisees. You know, today's strife that we see between, you know, red states and blue states, it was nothing compared to the enmity that existed between these groups. As we said before, this is Bane level hate. These are sworn enemies. And this concept of sworn enemies, it got me kind of my wheels turning. And so I, I actually want to play a little game. And I was planning on playing this game with a larger crowd, but we'll play with the group that's in here. And you can play along at home. Um, and this is a little game I'm calling Name the Enemies. 
Although uh, I, I, we could call it, are you smarter than a fourth grader? Because I think my son's going to do really good. So <laughs> we'll see who, can, who gets the most points here. So I'm going to give you a cause and I, I really want to play. So feel free to shout this out. I'm going to give you a cause. And then I want you to name the two enemies that came together for this cause. Okay. So the first cause these pint-sized enemies came together to navigate through the MMWL and find their way into Mordor. All right, who, who, who are the enemies? Frodo and Gollum. Yes, that's a point for my son, Frodo and Gollum. And then Pastor Eric's going to give us a little, a little photo. This is our high-tech, <laughs> this is our high-tech uh, uh, technology here. Thanks, Eric. Frodo and Sam. That's right. The two enemies came together. Okay. Number two, this pair of supersized enemies teamed up to take down Mecha Godzilla. Who, who, I, okay, I heard one. Godzilla and. Godzilla and. Just say, just say what he said. Yes, okay, well, I'm gonna split a point between. Sal and Pruitt. It's Godzilla and King Kong. I don't, I didn't know this. I didn't, I haven't seen this movie, but I think I'm going to have to put it on my, on my list. Godzilla and King Kong came together to fight Mecha Godzilla. All right. Some of these are easier. Some of these are harder. All right. This one, this one's a crowd pleaser for, for one particular person in the room. This animated pair of enemies first united to stop the evil Frieza from collecting the Dragon Balls. Goku and Vegeta. That's right. Okay. Pruitt's running away with this. That's Goku and Vegeta, everyone. Ian, you got to be faster, buddy. I love you, but you got to be faster. <laughs> okay. Um, I expect everyone to get this. So this, this side's been a little quiet. So this is where I kind of really want you guys to kind of get in here. There's no uh, consolation prizes here. All the money, you know, winner takes all. All right. This high-flying pair of rivals work together to fend off enemy MiGs in an aviation dogfight. That's a point for Mr. Llewellyn. It's Maverick and Iceman. I'm sorry, I heard it. You got to yell louder, I guess. Um, all right. These swashbuckling foes came together to stop the infamous Davy Jones and rescue the Black Pearl. Jack you got one, Eli. You're, you's so close. Who's who is his enemy? Well, Captain yeah, I'll give it to you. Yeah, it's Jack Sparrow and what Barbados? It doesn't sound right in my head right now, but. Barbosa, thank you, thank you. I should have written it down. I actually haven't seen this particular movie either, um, or if I did, it was a while ago. All right, I expect this one. I think Sauce, you're going to do really good on this. Um, these rival siblings set down their issues to stop their sister from destroying their home world. Rival siblings. Set us. That's it. Oh, Mr. Hunt got it. Loki and four. A point for Mr. Hunt. I've only got, um, I've got two more. Okay. I know it's all right. Uh, animated enemies came together uh, to escape the evil Sid and go back to their beloved Andy. That's right. Eli's on the board. Actually, you've got a couple points now. Eli's on the board. Okay. 
Last one. Hey, this is just an awful picture. I have no thing. I just wanted you to see. Sorry, people in the room, you're not going to be able to enjoy this. It's the Ohio State. Uh, the this is just a a picture of an Ohio State person and a Michigan person kissing. <laughs> they're just wearing. They're, yeah, I know. Just it just. It just feels wrong, right? There's a dog in the picture, and I like to think the story is they had to do it to save the dog. Um, that's the only reason I could see that that union like working. Um, so, thanks for playing the game. Um, as you can see, it takes an extraordinary cause to unite arch enemies. So, what was the extraordinary cause that united the Pharisees and the Herodians? I mean, obviously the answer is Jesus, but what was it about Jesus that created such unusual allies? To kind of help us answer that, I want to bring in another gospel story. So we're going to go um, and we're going to talk about a very famous story, the story of the prodigal son that's found in Luke 15. So um, in this story, is a parable that Jesus tells us. He tells us a story about a wealthy father who has two sons. Um, the younger son, he wants to go and live his life. He wants to get out from under his father's household. He wants to go and, you know, I don't know what young kids do these days, sow their, their oats, whatever they, they, they do. He wants to go out and do it. He wants to go out and live. And so he asks his father, while he's still living for his inheritance, he says, just give me the money you would give me once you're dead. And the father agrees and the son goes out and it says he, he, he lives this wild lifestyle. Um, but eventually the money runs out. He finds himself living in squalor. And it even says that he wishes he could eat what the pigs were eating. Eventually this hard living, this hard life, it, it knocks some sense into him. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to go back to my dad's house. I'm going to apologize and I'm going to say, hey, just, just make me like one of your servants. Just, you know, I'll work it off. And so he heads back to his father's house. But while he's still a ways away, the father sees him coming back. And the father is overjoyed to see his son returning. And he welcomes him back into the, um, to his house. And he, he, he throws a, a lavish party. He throws this lavish party. And while this party's happening, the older son who was out working in the field and this older son who had been faithfully following the rules for years, this, um, this older son, he sees this party and he gets upset. And he thinks, well, gosh, I've been following the, the, these rules for years. I've been waiting for my inheritance. And here they are just spoiling it on this younger brat who finally came back. And the father is outside and he's, he's pleading with the older son to join the party. And the story ends with the older brother outside refusing to join. And the lesson here, and I've heard, I, I don't know who the first pastor who said this. I love it. You know, we call it the parable, parable of the prodigal son. I love it when people call it the parable of the prodigal sons, plural, because neither father or neither son wants the father. They just want his stuff. They want his wealth. They want the, the, the life that he could provide them, but they do not want the relationship with him. Both sons are distant from the father. And so from this, we learn that there are two ways to avoid God. You can be very, very bad. 
You can be wild. You can be the younger son. Or you can be very, very good. You can be lawful. You can try to check all the boxes. You can be the older son. And so Jesus's message to the Pharisees is your moral living, your extra rules, your supposed superiority, they aren't going to bring you any closer to the father. You'll be the older brother and you'll be angry outside the party. And Jesus's message to the Herodians is your religious liberalism, you're cozying up to Rome, you're grasping for power, it's all going to dry up. You won't be with God. You won't be with the Father either. You're going to be in the pen with the pigs. And so the radical message of Jesus, the message so radical that it united his enemies, enemies who hated each other, is that neither goodness nor badness, neither right living nor wrong living, neither legalism or liberalism, will bring you any closer to a right relationship with God the Father. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And when the Pharisees heard this, and when the Herodians heard this, when they started to understand the message of Jesus, they got together and said, this is going to be a problem. We've got to do something. So a couple of questions for you as we move off the Herodians. In what way are you tempted to act like a Herodian? That might be compromising your convictions for convenience, ease, power. Do you kind of see yourself more like the younger brother, the Herodian, or the older brother, the Pharisee? And this may be the most important question of this, of our time together. What type of relationship do you want with a father? And how have you been trying to achieve it? Now, before we kind of wrap up, there's one other party that I want to look at in this story. And the last character here that we really haven't talked that much about, although pretty integral here, is the man with the withered hand. And I wish that we knew more about this person. I don't like just calling him the man with the withered hand. I wish I knew his name was Scott or something. Um, but we really don't have much more to go on than that. So let's, let's kind of tally up what we know about this person. We know that his hand was deformed in some manner. Um, there's sort of like ancient oral tradition that says that was passed down that said he was, might've been a plasterer. I don't know if that's true. Um, if he was, then it would be likely that he injured his hand or it got, you know, he got disease or something like that sometime, um, as later in life. And then that would affect his vocation. Um, either way, we know that he lived in a time of history where, um, the majority of vocations were manual labor. So this deformity would present him with a disadvantage that, um, that we wouldn't expect today. We know that he showed up to the synagogue. He came to the house of God. He came to church. For one reason or another, he came. 
We know that he was seen by Jesus. Many people might have passed by that day, but there was one person who noticed him on the way in, and that was Jesus. We know that when Jesus gave him a command, he obeyed. You know, I mean, it kind of feels like he didn't have much to lose, but Jesus said, stretch out, and he stretched out. And then we know he was restored. He went away that evening with two working hands. And that's it. That's it. That's all we know. That's all, we've, that's all we can tell. But man, if you stack all that up, it is so relatable because he was hurt. He was hurting. And so are we. And everybody in this room and everybody watching you're carrying some sort of a pain. That could be a physical pain. It could be an emotional pain. It could be a spiritual pain. But we are all carrying wounds. And we all bring them into this room or the whatever room you're in. We all have them. And he was looking for something. So he came to the house of God. And so did we. I mean, you're in your living room, presumably, or listening on a podcast, but you tuned in. You came. Why? What was the reason you came today? You know, some people get dragged in by accident, or maybe it's on the background while your spouse is, is watching, but I don't think that's an accident. I think that there's a purpose behind why this message is hitting your ears today. And then he was seen by Jesus. And oh man, if I could like, if only I could grant us the ability to see ourselves through Jesus's eyes. It can be really hard when we're in a crowd of people or we're alone in our home to feel like Jesus sees us. You know, we feel like we can get lost in the crowd, but please know that you are seen by Jesus. One of the beautiful things about Jesus, one of the beautiful things about a God like Jesus is he has the capacity and the heart to see you. He's not too busy for you and he wants to see you. And then what else? This man, he obeyed. And perhaps as we sort of wrap through our, 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 um, our sermon, um, it would be good to ask ourselves, where is God asking me to stretch out myself? What is God asking of you? In this moment, what is God asking of you? If it feels like a stretch for you, that's good because there's likely restoration on the other side. And the last thing we know is that he was restored. And now our restoration may not always look like miraculous healing. It might, I think that that's totally possible, but it, it may not always look like miraculous healing. God in his wisdom may ask us to carry some things for longer than we would like. But as Pastor Eric preached on last week, Jesus promises to meet our biggest need. And that is to be restored into a 
right relationship with God the Father. Now, normally this is where I would, I would transition into our time of communion. Today, with the small crowd here and, and you being at home, um, we are going to talk about communion with a sense of anticipation. We're going to talk about it like, um, uh, like folks who get to do it next week. Um, so um, I am going to talk through it a little bit because I do think it's important that we, um, that we bring its concepts into the room, into our hearts at this moment. So the night before Jesus died, he was with his closest friends. And he was sharing a meal with them and he took a cup, excuse me, he took a loaf of bread and he he tore it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he raised a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And, And this act, it was a foreshadowing of the work you know, the, the beautiful, the awful work he was going to do the next day on the cross. He's demonstrating what would happen. Um, but it was also a reminder that this is personal, that this is, a, this is not something that's just happening in an abstract way, but it's something that's happening with the interaction of you and me. You know, the man with the withered hand, he walked away healed. And the Pharisees, and the, and the Herodians, they walked away angry. They walked away plotting to kill. But please remember that Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. Each of us, when we take communion, when we do this, so again, we're thinking forward and we're thinking the next time we take communion, I want you to remember that this is an acknowledgement of the sin in our lives, the bad things, the wild things, the things that we do to get away from God and the good things, the moral things, the things that we do uh, because we think it'll make God bless us, the things that we do apart from the Lord. And those things, they make us enemies of God and they make us worthy of death. But what communion does, what the cross tells us is that only through Jesus's death are we spared and then we're brought brought into rest. We're restored to um, a relationship with God the Father. So that's our confession. We're gonna look forward to taking it together as a a family next week. Uh, For now, I'm gonna go ahead and pray and then we'll um, do another song, I think. Uh, God, I I thank you for... um, an awesome story um, that is interesting on so many levels and really teaches us um, the, um, the extraordinary uh, message of the gospel and um, challenges us to remember that there really aren't other ways to be right with God other than through you. There aren't any other ways to be right with God other than through you. And that the ways that we try will ultimately fail us. God, let us put those ways down and let us run to the cross and run to your feet. And God, um, please restore us into that right relationship. Thank you, God. Amen.